Hello, and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Today, we'll continue our series on the Eureka Rebellion. Last time, we looked at the background to the story, the development of the gold rushes and the gold fields in Australia in the 1850s. This episode, we're going to turn our focus to the Ballarat gold fields, where there was a great deal of frustration and aggravation, which eventually led to the building of the Eureka Stockade and the resulting lethal confrontation there. Australians like to think of the Eureka Uprising as a turning point in the development of our democracy, and there is certainly an element of that in the post-stockade outcomes. The initial catalysts began with unfair licensing arrangements, but there were more political influences, more frustrated causes, and even personal and local motivations that actually fed into and provoked the diggers of the Ballarat goldfields to take up arms and to prepare to physically fight the authorities. So let's have a look at how the Ballarat goldfields developed and how some of these factors began increasing the tensions there. If you are new to the Australian Histories podcast but interested in the Eureka story, I would suggest that you listen first to episode 29, Eureka Part 1, Gold, which will give you a brief background to the gold rushes starting in Australia and the way the authorities tried to manage the rush. The road to the Eureka Rebellion was actually quite long and contained a myriad of grievances and triggers which finally came to an unhappy clash on December 3, 1854, and the echo that followed it was full of shock, loss, punishment, inquiry, reproach, and finally some reform. The confrontation at Eureka can at least be said to have influenced the direction of Victoria's, perhaps Australia's, democratic future. I had every intention to tell this part of the story in one episode, right up to the point where they built the stockade, but it has been an absolute monster to write, and it really was going to be way too long. So, I have had to divide this next instalment into two parts, but I will release them one after the other, as soon as the next recording is completed, so you don't have to wait too long. It is taking a while to get to the really meaty bit. But for now, let's get this episode started. When we finished the last episode, we had considered the backstory on gold discovery and the Australian rushes, and we noted the mechanisms the government had put in place to regulate and to raise taxes from the diggings. These arrangements were highly unpopular and were manifestly unfair. They were complained about constantly, both on the goldfields and by the working people in the towns and cities across the colonies. While there were those of the opinion that the diggers were simply greedy, and unwilling to pay a tax for the privilege of digging great wealth out of the ground, there were many others who saw the system's weaknesses, and there were frequent and loud calls for the government to reassess its simplistic approach. Port Phillip had, in the meantime, become a separate colony from New South Wales, and was forming its first parliament to run the new colony of Victoria, with Charles Joseph Latrobe in charge. But Latrobe's heart had not been joyfully in the job for quite a while, really. According to the Australian Dictionary of Biography, quote, Latrobe did not have the usual background of a colonial governor. He had no army or naval training, little administrative experience, and, with his talents and interests, high principles and serious mind, he was a cultured gentleman rather than an intellectual or an executive. 
He was a man of a thousand occupations, a botanist, a geologist, a hunter of beetles and butterflies, a musical amateur, a sketcher of no mean pretensions, in short, a complete virtuoso. Unquote. In January of 1839, Gentleman Latrobe was appointed superintendent of Port Phillip District by the New South Wales Governor Gibbs. Latrobe arrived in Melbourne in September with his wife, daughter, two servants, and a lovely prefabricated house transported in sections from London. The building survives today, and while originally erected in Jollymont, in the 1960s it was moved to the Botanic Gardens, gardens that he had established for the glory of Port Phillip District in 1846. In 1998, it was again moved to its current location at King's Domain, behind the Shrine of Remembrance. Now being Melbourne's oldest surviving building, the National Trust looks after Latrobe's cottage today, and it is open to the public on specific days, so you could check the National Trust website if a visit there interests you. He seems to have initially enjoyed the posting, his biography entry stating, quote, for such a man, the district of Port Phillip provided great pleasure, himself saying, I had from the first a passion for the plains and for my solitary hard rides across them, and retained it to the last, unquote. But more pressure came for Latrobe with self-government, once Victoria officially separated from New South Wales in 1851. And then he experienced the additional stress associated with the gold rush soon afterwards. While Latrobe supported the push for independence, he would have preferred a slower transition. But as early as 1840, there was agitation from amongst the then 10,000 strong population in Port Phillip to separate, many being unhappy with the district's meagre representation in the New South Wales Parliament and the resulting poor funding and lack of development and infrastructure being approved. And they were also pretty keen to stop convicts being sent to the district particularly as New South Wales itself was then agitating to cease receiving convicts. None more zealous than the reformed, eh? By the time of separation, though, the population of the prosperous new colony of Victoria had grown to nearly 80,000. The Australian Colonies Government Act of 1850 gave the new Victoria, quote, a constitutional arrangement in which conflict was inherent, unquote. So the initial structure was a bit difficult to wrangle, and the members involved did not always function harmoniously together, creating more friction for Latrobe. Indeed, he was quite unable to institute some of the necessities he believed were required. And it seems that those put in place as senior officials were also not the most ideal for the jobs initially. The sudden upheaval of the coming gold rushes were to test them all and to find them wanting. We know from last episode that the unpopular gold licensing regime was a poor mechanism for collecting taxes and attempting to control the citizens. The lack of response to the public objections was the initial catalyst, which eventually led to the Eureka Uprising. However, the Dictionary of Biography specifically notes that while Latrobe, quote, realised the disadvantage of a licence fee and preferred an export duty on gold, by the time such a duty could be substituted in September of 1852, the Legislative Council was unwilling to do so, and must thus bear the responsibility for later troubles, unquote. So one can imagine this would be a much less attractive governorship by then. Quote, His hands were full with the problem of establishing control. Crime increased greatly as Vandemonians flocked to Victoria, uniting the citizens in a further attack on convicts and transportation. 
The council passed a harsh convicts prevention bill, and although it was clearly illegal, Latrobe assented to it. Unquote. The Vandemonians spoken of here were the ex-convicts from Van Diemen's Land, always considered the worst of the worst, and coming into an environment of largely free men, or at least long free men, so most unwelcome. Things did begin to improve with the government in 1853, and Latrobe's biographer noted, quote, He later wrote, No one can know how difficult was the period 1851-52, to but those who were in that fierce struggle for the maintenance of order under so many disadvantages. Despite blunders and great difficulties during these times, he made a profound achievement in keeping government functioning and in maintaining the rule of law. Eventually, he coped with the immense and rapid physical and numerical expansion of his colony, unquote. But his life had become more unhappy on the home front, too. His Swiss wife, Sophie, suffered a serious decline in health during these years, and Latrobe submitted his resignation in December of 1852. Unfortunately, he was required to stay on until relieved, not sailing until May of 1854. But with her health failing, Sophie and the four children left for Switzerland much earlier, and sadly she died there on the 30th of January 1854, before Latrobe had even left Australian shores. So that's pretty awful. Though, it did allow Latrobe a bit of a Henry Tudor moment. When returning to England, he went on to marry his wife's sister, with what some of us might think unseemly haste <laughs> after his return. And he must have been pretty keen, as it was actually an illegal act at the time, such marriages being considered legally incestuous. Hmm. Anyway, Latrobe's interesting post-colonial life aside... What this meant for Victoria was that a new and different kind of governor would be taking over. Latrobe did try to change the gold licensing regime from an upfront fee to a fairer tax on gold found, but as I mentioned earlier, the legislative members stymied that reform. Meanwhile, the poor calibre of the goldfields police that Latrobe had sent to enforce the regulations was creating some friction on the goldfields the force by then existing mostly of men that may have been rejected in recruiting in the past, like the hated and corrupt Vandemonians, that is, the dregs of society and ex-prisoners from Van Diemen's Land, according to the contemporary impressions recorded. But Latrobe was finding it increasingly difficult to placate the already influential Victorian squatters and council members, while trying to address the calls for reassessment of the licensing arrangements from the diggers and much of the general public. All the while, government spending was spiralling out of control. Squatters, if you recall, were the men who moved in to the unallocated and empty lands. Of course, they were not empty, and were in fact inhabited by local indigenous clans across the colony. But little account was taken of that, and the government largely turned a blind eye to the displacement, conflict and violence that ensued, as the squatters expanded their runs. They would later hope to legitimise ownership of the land they would occupy with leaseholds and outright purchases from the government. Those who listened to the Kelly series might recall the episode where we discussed the squatters in the northeast of Victoria and the trouble that followed when the government finally did open up the land there to other purchases. This was land that the squatters felt was theirs by right of being their first, sort of dibs on the lucrative farming land, but my goodness, that didn't seem to be a concern when they were moving the previous inhabitants off the land, the people who genuinely were there first, 
and we know there were many years of ongoing social difficulties in that northeast region which contributed to disturbing outcomes, such as that Kelly outbreak. The Kelly saga occurred in the 1870s, around 20 or so years after the period we're talking about today, so you can see that there was still ongoing land tensions and undue influence from the wealthy propertied into the decisions the government was supposed to be making for the good of all its citizens for many, many years. Well, the more things change, the more they stay the same, some might say. Anyway, in fledgling Victoria, the new gold rushes and the resulting social upheaval certainly put the wind up old Latrobe, and there was no doubt his tasks suddenly became much harder as a result. In response to the harsh regulations imposed via the licensing system, meetings of unhappy miners were taking place all over the goldfields in New South Wales and Victoria, and diggers were trying to get their grievances heard and addressed, in a time when most of them had no representation or voting franchise. As you may recall from last time, the regulations had a lot of stipulations, aside from the heavy cost. One was that all men on the goldfields should have purchased a licence up front and that the licence must be carried on the digger's person at all times. The commissioner had the power to search the goldfields and demand the licence be produced on command. The manner in which these searches were carried out became a strong point of objection. But miners voicing their objections began in a pretty civilised way. One early meeting regarding licence arrangements took place in Ballarat on August 25, 1851. With the fees being firmly enforced in the area, a group of as-yet unsuccessful diggers petitioned the commissioners, noting that many diggers, having only recently arrived in the area, had not yet found enough gold to pay any fee. As I mentioned last episode, quoting from a New South Wales meeting, the miners didn't actually object to paying a fair tax, but rather they objected to the unfairness of its design, its high cost, the unreasonable control elements, the difficulties with the processing, and the way that the rules were enforced. Another meeting the following week, the miners threatened to band together and withhold payment en masse, and a representative was sent to present their case to the commissioner. But again, they were simply reminded of the existing law and given short shrift. The commissioners seemed uninterested in passing their grievances on to the government for review. And in the end, with no receptive signs from the commissioner, they all had to yield and find a way to make the payment or risk losing their claims. This FOMO effect, the fear of missing out, is why those withholding payments for their licences were particularly gutsy. It was a very high-risk exercise, as far as potential for loss of their claim, not just a matter of breaking the law. In the end, you just had to get back to digging. Who knew when a massive nugget might be yours for the taking? One of the last to submit and make a payment after that meeting was a man who initially roused the mob and called for the boycott. When he finally yielded and went to pay, he was refused a licence by the commissioner for being a troublemaker. The commissioners usually had their own men spying at these meetings to report on the goings-on. We mentioned in the previous episode the fluctuating licence fees too, and with the increasing costs of policing and governing the expanding goldfields sucking the treasury dry, Latrobe had suggested raising more revenue by increasing the monthly fee to £3 from January 1852. In response, in nearby Tewton, 20,000 diggers gathered at what came to be called the Great Meeting 
So it was clear quite early that with numbers like this, it was not just a few rebellious or ratbag diggers making trouble, but rather a genuine and broad grievance that should have been taken seriously rather than being ignored. It truly was such an exorbitant fee that the government backed down for the time being. The cost was not the only objection to the goldfields management. Hocking wrote, quote, The behaviour of the police, who profited from the arrest of the diggers and who were free of constraint by the government, were a law unto themselves, creating more unrest than they had seemed prepared to prevent. The diggers' protest may have caused the government to rethink the issue of the licence fee, but until military rule was abolished, the goldfields remained a hotbed of sedition, unquote. And so discontent with the rules and the authorities festered and grew into the inevitable confrontation in the years that followed. The licence fee rates did change back and forth over time. In that first proclamation it was set at 30 shillings a month for every adult male on the goldfields. Interestingly, there were some who were exempt from having to pay a fee, such as women, who were present in the goldfields, but in relatively small numbers in the early days. And doctors, for example in the hope one assumes of making the diggings a more attractive destination to persons desirable and helpful in any community. Now I find the imperial currency of the age completely mind-boggling, as I do imperial measurement of any sort actually, but I think I'm correct in saying that in the day there were 20 shillings to a pound sterling, so that would make the initial cost of a one-month licence one and a half pounds, I think. (laughs) Suffice to say, it was a lot of money to find, in advance, every month, with no other income. Very tough if you're not digging up a truckload of gold immediately. And it was always an upfront fee, the same for all diggers, no matter the success of their diggings. I've placed images of two licences, just pre and post Eureka on the website, for your interest, but note that not all fee prices quoted are the same because of these fluctuations over time. Such was the concern of the squatters about losing their labourers that Latrobe considered not allowing any licences to be issued until the harvesting and shearing season was over. But of course he did come to his senses, realising that holding back such a human tide would be impossible. And so they introduced as draconian rules with the licence issue as they could to help manage the movement of men to the goldfields. If you remember from last episode, one condition stated that, quote, no person will be eligible to obtain a licence or renewal unless he shall provide a certificate of discharge from his last service or prove to the satisfaction of the commissioner that he is not a person improperly absent from hired service, unquote. So it all sounds very controlling and quite excessively expensive, but we should note that even at these high rates, the income from the fees were not covering the huge cost of managing the goldfields mainly owing to the massively increased wage expenditures for the government, and everyone else, of course, who now had to contend with the resulting labour shortage. Maloney records that at the beginning of 1851, that's pre-gold rush, Latrobe, with his meagre budget, was already struggling with the expenditure in Victoria, close to £100,000 per annum, and about a quarter of which was already spent on maintaining a police force. Little did he know that the diminished force in two years' time would be then costing Victoria more than £300,000, albeit to very poor effect. Post-Gold Rush, Latrobe had to very quickly raise the wages of public servants to try and hold them in their existing positions. 
The stories of men pulling a lifetime's wealth out of the ground for very little effort made any standard job a lot less attractive. One police officer in Melbourne resigned his post, and after six weeks in the diggings, he returned to show his former colleagues the £500 he'd made. The officers during that time had been making four shillings a day, all at a time when the resulting rush was pushing up the cost of living, the price of bread having doubled, for example. So with old colleagues like that visiting, you can see why it was hard to keep the men in the barracks. Even the generous 50% wage hikes could not match the potential for income with a lucky strike on the goldfields. As I mentioned earlier, the lure was so attractive that many workers simply left their current employment to try their luck. Squatters lost their labourers, businessmen their workers, even a couple of members of the Victorian Legislative Assembly resigned and headed for the goldfields. Ships docking found their sailors abandoning ship. Fifty-nine at one point were reportedly left at anger with no crew, and their captains were offering up to ten times their usual wage to recruit men for a return voyage outbound, still with only minor effect. The police force was in a very bad way. Hocking claims that at one point only five constables remained in the force, only two of those in Melbourne, and so some hasty, and as it will turn out, some very ill-advised recruiting had to be undertaken along with substantial increases to wages. The calibre of men recruited during these desperate times was questionable, but there was now an increased need for the police across the expanded goldfields, and so needs must, as they say. This state of affairs was to impact on those at the Ballarat goldfields in particular. Ballarat was generally a goldfield of high yield in those early years, though there were certainly some areas more productive than others. One of the problems for the diggers in trying to negotiate with the authorities was the early impressions that were made. Soon after the Ballarat field opened, Latrobe visited in September, and he actually witnessed five men recover 136 ounces of gold in one day, and another 120 ounces the next. His impressions from seeing these lucky diggers would have influenced his future perspective of gold mining. In his eyewitness experience, the stuff pretty much just jumped onto one shovel. In those early days, the finds could be easy if you were lucky enough to get the right claim spot, but in reality, it was still a lottery. Miners in one gully, known as Golden Point, were prosperous, while those just one valley over, working just as hard, or probably a lot harder, were much less successful, and their area became known as Poverty Point. But how could one give up and walk away, when there were stories of a big find just one shovelful away? There were some in the Victorian legislature who thought the licensing system and fees were, quote, unproductive, unequal and vexatious, its details expensive and obscure, unquote. And a motion was put, as early as December 1851, that it be replaced by a levy on the actual gold produced. But Maloney noted that so early on, while there was a lot of grumbling, there was a very little resistance to the fee in the fields. While gold was plentiful, many did not want to miss the chance of an early opportunity, and so the miners grumbled but often found the money. So the legislature, not feeling much pressure from the goldfields at that time, failed to take any action to reform the arrangements. Maloney said of Ballarat, and I've abridged his writing here, Quote, the diggers still lined up for their piece of paper. Stern resistance then could have saved much suffering later. 
Yet, for men earning £3 or £5 a day, the 30 shillings a month seemed a trifle. The men could not foresee a day when the gold would run thin, and 30 shillings would mean the difference between survival and destitution." Unquote. But agitation did increase as the easy gold declined, and despite the great outcry coming from the miners and the public in Melbourne, the government simply stayed on the chosen licensing course and tried to ride out the protests. Latrobe was relying on the rule of English law being respected by the Englishmen of Victoria, and on his commissioners and goldfield police enforcing such laws. But, of course, many who thereafter arrived on the goldfields were not Englishmen, who had an unquestioning respect for the implementation of unreasonable laws, or not necessarily British at all, with a committed and healthy respect for Queen Victoria's government. Many were Irish or Scottish, with a scepticism born from the experience of the lack of that reciprocal respect that should be evident between one's government and its people. Or they might be other Europeans, perhaps used to confrontation with their governments like the Italian Raffaello Carboni, or Republicans like Frenchman Antoine Fortuny, Or they might have been American, with their enthusiasm for the Republic, and so there may have been many on the goldfields happy to push back against the old structures and even be proud of doing so. Some of those men may have been armed and recently battle-hardened from European or Mexican wars. So it was a rather optimistic call for the governors and commissioners to be so resistant to hearing the miners' grievances, in good faith, being deaf and confrontational instead, and their tendency to simply stand firm and ignore pleas, or suppress the rabble with harsher treatment, <laughs> that's always a winner, only increased when the new governor, Charles Hotham, arrived to take charge in June of 1854. Hotham was a military man, with good military and diplomatic experience, and he was initially considered an impressive selection. The Victorians were interested to see what reforms he might make. The diggers hopeful he would replace Latrobe's hated licence fee system altogether with a fairer tax regime of some sort. While Hotham may have been initially interested in the posting to Victoria, the Crimean War had just recently broken out, and his preference switched to desiring a command there but his request was rejected, and he had to make his way to Victoria after all. He had an adjustment to make on arrival, having to wrangle the existing legislature rather than just giving orders and having them obeyed, but the public awaited his appointment with much anticipation. A public holiday marked his arrival, and he received an enthusiastic and noisy reception, making his way from the ship to his new residence. So his governorship started out in a very positive way. In Ballarat, easy alluvial gold near the surface was producing good incomes for many in the beginning, but in time, much more effort and rigorous mining was required to get results. Even so, luck played a great part. Hocking records a story of a group of diggers who arrived in Ballarat as complete new chums in November of 1852. The group of five men only just arrived off a ship in Port Phillip Bay. They had no prior experience, and they simply selected an abandoned mine shaft, which apparently had brought the previous claimants no joy, and they started digging to experience the diggers' lot and to try their luck. They constructed a makeshift hauling frame across the top, to the amusement of the more seasoned diggers watching on nearby, and one bloke was lowered down the shaft by the others. Reaching the bottom of the shaft, around 15 metres or 16 yards down, he thought he'd dig a little deeper, just to get the feel of it, his mates hauling up the spoil as he dug. Soon he felt his digging surface change, 
and he uncovered what turned out to be a huge gold nugget, only just below the surface recently abandoned by the previous owner. Stunning his digger mates and everyone else nearby, the monster nugget, as it was later called, weighed 132 pounds. That's nearly 60 kilograms. I'm checking my reference again, but he's written 132 pound, <laughs> so that's amazing. They continued their digging into the night, and by the morning they'd found a further 150 ounces. That's another 4.25 kilos. Considering this a good day's work, and knowing when to fold them, perhaps, they sold their lucky claim for £500, headed back to Melbourne, and boarded the very same ship that had brought them in only a few days before, now more than £7,000 richer for their efforts. <laughs> so that's not a bad day's work. It was stories like these that continued to fuel the rush, even as the easy pickings declined, and which probably steeled the authorities' stance against the request for a modification of fees. There still appeared to be many making a fortune from Queen Victoria's resources. But of course, few thought about those who were digging for the long haul with less luck. Ballarat geology was such that below the surface alluvial deposits, there was a layer of rock which many interpreted as a base and gave up digging but it was later recognised that digging through that layer often brought the miners onto a more ancient riverbed where gold could once again be found, and underground quartz veins could be traced through the area. Hocking records that this second level was often 50 or 60 metres below ground, so it became dedicated, dangerous and hard mining work before one might even reach the potentially lucrative layers. And of course not everyone happened across a huge nugget on their first day, in fact, almost no one did, and by the 1853, deep shafts were often required for any good return. It could be many months, even up to a year, before one reaped any reward, and therefore it was an expensive undertaking, even to reach the geology of hope. I mean, after hearing of those newcomers finding the monster nugget less than a foot below where the previous occupant had called it quits, how could you ever stop swinging your pick? Just one more bucketful could see your ship come in. It's a hard call deciding whether to chuck it in or try for one more month, but finding the money for the licence was becoming more and more difficult, and so it would be true that many miners by then might have been working away there without holding a current licence, hence the regular searches. Another grievance, though, was that the authorities certainly focused on the policing activities that ensured the fees were paid, and those unlicensed were fined, staging regular digger hunts and arresting those found without a license on their person. But they were failing in providing a proper policing service to the ordinary citizens on the goldfield, such as keeping the peace and enforcing other laws without fear or favour. And there was a need for some policing on the goldfields and the roads to and from. There was some risk of robbery, and in such an environment, frequent disagreements about boundaries and claims and with sly grog shops everywhere, things could sometimes get a bit wild. But corruption amongst the authorities at Ballarat seemed rife. It was a case of who you knew that might dictate the kind of policing service you received. Many officials were just out for themselves. Maloney recorded reports of one man starting at Ballarat as a policeman, becoming a Crown Lands bailiff, and finally a commissioner, being, quote, a treacherous barbaric thug, and who a contemporary colleague said resembled a servant of Nero and Caligula. 
His atrocities were constantly brought to the attention of the government, but for two years his savage and corrupt course of violence, bribe-taking and intimidation continued before they took any action. On leaving he was reported to have said, I don't mind being turned out, for in these two years I've cleared £15,000. Now if that's true, it is unbelievable that he should not be charged and punished for the monstrous crimes and corruption he's perpetrated on the civilians there. But while many gold miners had high hopes of a more constructive dialogue with the new Governor Hotham, expecting some movement on the draconian regulations, they failed to understand that Hotham had been sent out with a specific brief to rein in the huge deficit left by Latrobe. After inspecting the fields himself, his managed visit once again gave the impression that easy gold was there for the taking by anyone looking. Rather than listening to their representations, hearing their grievances and considering their suggestions, Hotham quietly determined that the current system should remain and actually be more vigorously enforced, despite directly telling the miners, quote, Diggers, I feel delighted with your reception, and I shall not neglect your interests or welfare, unquote. Hotham soon afterwards issued a secret directive that the checking for licences, digger hunts as described by the diggers themselves, then occurring two or three times a month, should be increased to twice weekly to snare those who were not paying the required fees, and he then sent more rather untrained military men to assist the police. But he was to discover that the men doing the policing, at Ballarat at least, were often highly unscrupulous and abusive, and this immediately set the scene for a major escalation of resistance and protest there. In Ballarat, the police camp was located on Camp Street, the men living in tents with a timber slab courthouse on site. Prior to building a log lockup, any prisoners there were held by being chained to a tree trunk in the camp, fair weather and foul. A good percentage of those arrested were probably unlicensed, but some would have been legally mining, but caught without having their license document on their person. Others, such as Father Smythe's assistant, would have been entirely innocent, but arrested anyway, by the kind of trooper who simply enjoyed exercising his power over others. The police received a commission on all the fines they extracted, so motivation to nab any they could was high. Again, we noted in the Kelly series when a police force is rewarded directly for particular actions, rather than simply being well paid to undertake all their duties fairly, it leads to a bias in their activities and tends to corruption of duty. There's no denying it was a tough job trying to manage the goldfields, but the mode of enforcing at Ballarat was most unpopular, not least because the mounted police came into the dig sites as an aggressive armed military unit, rather than a civil policing body. Anyone who has ever had the experience of encountering ticket inspectors on public transport might know what I'm alluding to here. The transaction may be entirely pleasant if approached with a civil request by decent officers who treat you as a fellow human being just going about your business. But it can be highly offensive and anxiety-inducing if you're confronted by an arrogant, aggressive demand from an officer who clearly sees you as the offending enemy even before the encounter has begun and whether you have a ticket or not. While not all officers undertaking the license inspections may have been unpleasant and aggressive, enough were at Ballarat so that in the twice-weekly raids the miners were by then subject to, it set a very unfortunate and unhealthy tone between the authorities and the miners, which only deteriorated further over the following weeks. 
Such digger hunts might begin with the troopers storming across the goldfield, often with weapons brandished. Cries of Joe, Joe, or traps would go up across the dig site, warning those at risk to scarper. The Goldfields police were known as Joe's Traps, after Charles Joseph Latrobe, who set up the Goldfields police when the Victorian rushes began, and the term stuck. Traps generally referred to the foot police, troopers for those mounted. When Joe was called across the diggings, miners knew a raid was on. Sometimes a lookout would act as a sentinel up a tree, but when the call came, the diggers all jumped to action. Those unlicensed especially keen to hide or escape the area. The police had sometimes recruited spies to draw a crowd into the open before a hunt, or to identify various diggers to focus on, and they attended gatherings and meetings to report the talk back to police too. Again, while these regimes seem to have been in action across the goldfields, it seems the enforcing at Ballarat was particularly bad, as numerous sources suggested the police camp at Ballarat was manned by a toxic, aggressive and corrupt group. Raffaello Carboni, mining on the Eureka field, wrote of the license hunts in his memoir, The Eureka Stockade, and I've abridged here, quote, Such disgusting and contemptible campaigns for the search of licenses is really odious to an honest man. Some of the traps were civil enough, Aye, they felt the shame of their duty, but there were among them devils at heart who enjoyed the fun, and they looked upon the ragged, muddy blue shirt as an object of their contempt, unquote. Blue shirt refers to miners. Many of the miners wore blue shirts made of cheap and hardy material, so that this was a term used to collectively describe the miners, blue shirts. That blue shirt colour would be enshrined in the flag that was to be raised in the stockade later. One of many well-recounted stories of overreach witnessed at Ballarat concerns the arrest of Father Smythe's assistant, Johannes Gregorius. Father Smythe and Johannes, who was described as being crippled and therefore would have had limited mobility, ministered to the diggers on the Ballarat fields and as ministers of religion, they were exempt from having to have a miner's licence to be on site. On October 10, 1854, Johannes was visiting a sick man in his tent. Maloney recorded the actions of one officer, quote, Lord rode up to the tent, halted and invited the damned wretches within to come forth, which they did immediately, despite their infirmities, Lord demanded Johannes's licence, and the servant replied that he worked for Father Smythe and didn't have one. Damn you and the priest, roared Lord. He then dismounted and assaulted the man in a cowardly and shameful manner, which included tearing his clothing and permitting his horse to trample upon him. Assistant Commissioner Johnston happened to come upon this transaction in its immediate aftermath. Those who witnessed it fully expected that Johnston would take his trooper in charge for the assault, unquote. But he didn't raise an eyebrow. Johnston allowed Johannes to be charged, and there was no reprimand or further action taken against the overzealous and violent officer. Indeed, at court, when it seemed they couldn't pursue the original charge, the law allowing the clergy to be on the goldfields without a licence, though some sources do say he was fined for no licence despite that law, Johannes was then further charged with assaulting the trooper, though many reliable witnesses recorded that it was the other way around. However, surprisingly, he was found guilty of that charge and fined. 
The Catholics of the area reported the gross injustice up the chain of command, but even their pleas were dismissed by the Chief Commissioner and the Colonial Secretary. This served to alienate the Ballarat mining community further from the authorities, with their indifference to the brutality and corruption that was being experienced there even by the most upstanding of citizens. In the weeks to come, Officer Lord was relocated to Melbourne, but the authorities were not going to take any responsibility for the bad, indeed illegal behaviour the Commissioner and the rest of the authorities had sanctioned by their inaction. When a petition came his way from the wider Catholic community, Hotham himself made a note on the documentation, which said, quote, I do not see that Mr Johnston was at all to blame, though it might be politic to remove him at present from Ballarat. Unquote. It appears, though, that the Commissioner was not actually removed, despite Hotham's suggestion. So, this was a good illustration of how, while the authorities were entitled to enforce the law, they felt it acceptable to do so in this most confrontational, aggressive, and actually illegal way. How can your citizens remain respectful of a regime that operates like this? We can begin to see how the Goldfields Police there engendered such hostility that the diggers could entertain the idea of taking up arms against them. These were not fellow citizens doing their lawful job, but government-sanctioned oppressors and bullies throwing their physical and legal weight around unfairly. And citizens could find no recourse in reporting such behaviour to their higher authorities. This behaviour and attitude towards the diggers seemed to be supported at the highest levels, rather than the government being appalled by the corruption and the assaults that were being reported. So it's not surprising to note that a number of other unfortunate fuses were being set at Ballarat too. OK, so we're up to about 50 minutes or so here, so I am going to finish the episode right here today. But I will be recording the next one very soon afterwards, and we'll release it in just another day or two. So there'll be no podcast recommendations here and not too much blah, 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 so that the next one can follow on smoothly. Thanks for listening and keep your eye out for the following one coming through in the next couple of days. Cheers. Cheers.